From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. She pushed for wildfire alerts in Spanish. Now Elizabeth Velasco is taking language equality to the state capitol. Because that's needed at all the levels, you know, at emergency communications and at healthcare and justice and or court systems or schools. Plus, why she believes so strongly in engaging community, from voting to running for office. And we have to be engaged. Like, we cannot let things just happen to us. Then, a holiday classic re-envisioned as an old-time radio show with a diverse cast touched by the attack on Club Q. And as we tell this very specific story where so much of it is about how your life impacts and connects to other people's lives, I think we're learning that lesson already. Thank you for supporting CPR. Every day, your membership is put to good work serving communities across our state. You ensure that news and music remain freely available to Coloradans everywhere. Your generosity helps make it all possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. She pushed for wildfire alerts in Spanish. Now she's taking language equality to the state capitol. Democrat Elizabeth Velasco is the first Latina to represent House District 57, which was redrawn to include Pitkin and Garfield counties and the Roaring Fork Valley in Eagle County. Velasco spoke with my colleague, Miguel Otarola. So I remember at the beginning of last year, you and I had talked. You were coming off a really busy year of doing a lot of translation, especially in 2020 doing this uh, translating emergency fire alerts, evacuation alerts for firefighters and for people in near fires. What made you want to put that aside and decide to run for office? Yeah, you know, during COVID and during that very crazy fire season, I saw that we were leaving people behind, that, that one size doesn't fit all, that there was, it felt like there was a disconnect between leadership and people on the ground. And I knew that we could do better and our families and our communities deserve better. So that's why I jumped in. You were working with fire officials. Uh, You were doing, in particular, work for Spanish speakers, right? When you did that work, what did you learn about kind of Latinos and Hispanic people and how they are sort of treated and considered by, by state agencies and like uh, other officials? How did you, how do you feel that they were treated based on the work that you were doing? I feel like a lot of times when there's an emergency, things move really fast and we need to be proactive and create plans where we're able to reach everyone because, for example, for our Latino community in the district, um, the Spanish information came later after there was advocacy from from different organizations and, and local nonprofits. And really, that should be at the forefront. You know, we should be able to communicate with everyone when there's an emergency. So I saw that language access is a gap, that representation was a gap, that um, we didn't have um, diverse uh, leadership with all these different agencies that were able to communicate with community. What do you remember most about that experience? 
What I remember the most was, you know, I was under pre-evacuation order and not knowing what to do. And, you know, we had five-hour detours north or south of the canyon. I had my elderly father-in-law, and I, I didn't know what to take with me. <laughs> I didn't know where to go. And, and I am someone who speaks the language, who is plugged in, you know, because I work with local agencies and, and federal agencies, and I was still really scared. So now imagine someone that doesn't speak the language, and that just makes me think of my own family. You know, my mom is a Spanish speaker, and, you know, I would want my mom to be safe. So that's really what I was thinking about, that I want everyone to be safe and have the information that they need to, to make the best choices for them. What fire was that that you were talking about? That was the Grizzly Creek fire. Two years later, do you feel that Colorado has changed on that front? How do you feel like it's doing now when it comes to getting that information out? I feel like there's still a lot that we can do to be proactive. I know that, you know, that year we had some of the worst air quality in the world here in Colorado because of the compounding effects of fire smoke coming from the West and that there's still so much that, so much more that we can do, you know, to have better channels of communication with community. And it really, to me, there's a, a gap in trust and, and strong relationships with community that would really help with emergency communications. Did you notice that gap when you were running for office? Yes. Mm-hmm. How so? Yeah, you know... My bigger goal when I when I think about my campaign has been to expand the electorate, to engage community, because a lot of times politics feels like it's not for us, like it's something complicated. And we have to to bring down the issues. You know, how does this impact my family? How does this impact our pockets? And when we think of inflation, you know, like that that means pressure on working families. That means that things are more expensive that is harder to pay rent, you know, to make ends meet. And and I think that really uh, we need people to be engaged and we need people to support someone who's going to fight for them and who's going to, uh, who has their values. And, and I think that that's going to make a stronger democracy, you know, when we have people that, that are actually going to do um, what's good for community. And so you were doing that translation work. You were working with the the firefighters a lot in 2020, right? Mm-hmm. And then you did some more training last year for that, right? And did you work on that a little bit last year too? Yeah, yeah. So I, I got my red card. So I'm a wildland firefighter type two. And then I, I was working as a public information officer. And I was out in California and Oregon for the mega fires out there. And I was working with tribal communities, with ranchers, with rural communities. And a lot of them were similar to my community. (laughs) You know, there were diverse communities who were getting gridlocked because of the mountains and because of their geography. And a lot of times they didn't trust the government, (laughs) you know, which we see, we saw during the pandemic. So those gaps, you know, are, are still there. And we know that with climate change, that or house is on fire. <laughs> and we know that fire is going to be a reality for us. Um, so it's so important to be proactive and and really work on those, those resiliency plans for community and bring in that ancestral knowledge 
and cultural fire from tribal communities. Do you expect that you're going to have to do more translation work or fire emergency work in the future? Yeah, yeah, I definitely would would love to continue serving and and doing public information. And I'm not sure if my business, if I'm going to be able to continue, you know, with my agency. But I, I definitely will bring in my perspective as someone who brings in language access because that's needed at all the levels, you know, at emergency communications and at healthcare and justice and uh, or court systems or schools. Yeah. So language access definitely needs to be a priority for the state. And also just kind of uh, speaking generally, do you expect to see more wildfires in Colorado? Yes, of course. I mean, it's... It's going to be uh, when we see hotter temperatures, we are ex experiencing a drought. We see um, that water is a limited resource. You know, definitely I see that fire is a reality for us. So you call yourself a daughter of immigrants. You know, you, you take pride in that. Can you tell me a little bit about your parents? You know, where are they from and how that influenced your upbringing? Yeah, my my parents are both from Mexico City. When they got married, they moved to Guanajuato, and that's where I grew up, in Guanajuato. And, you know, my, my, my so dad... So you're an immigrant yourself. Yeah, yeah, I am also an immigrant. And my dad was always working in the U.S., and my mom was a nurse in Mexico. And I see that, you know, they worked so hard. When we moved here, they were working three jobs to pay rent. Uh, they have never been able to own a home because... Uh, one time they were uplifted from their home because their job employment changed. And another time because of predatory loans, they had to file for bankruptcy. And, you know, I, I think that this is the reality for a lot of working families, that they, they work so hard and they're still not, not able to make a living wage and they're still not able to own their home. And they're still, um, you know, so I think that that reality and really living the issues uh, gives me a really, you know, a good perspective now with, with my new my new job as a legislator. How did you end up in Glenwood Springs? Uh, so it was because of my husband. <laughs> uh, I, I was living in, uh, in Eagle County. I, you know, my first career, I was a chef. Oh, okay. Yeah. Very so neat. I was working uh, with the Ritz-Carlton and in Beaver Creek and Bachelor Gulch. So I lived in that area, lived in Gypsum and Minturn. And, and then when I met my husband, he was working in Snowmass. And that was the time when I trained to, I was training to be an interpreter. And I got a job as a medical interpreter. So I, I moved in with him in Snowmass. And, and we have lived up and down the valley, you know, in Newcastle, in Glenwood Springs. And so I, I really love the mountains. Like, that's my home. It's a beautiful area and very diverse. Mm -hmm. um, you know, speaking of those counties that you're going to be representing now in your House District 57, Colorado is more than one-fifth Hispanic. Your counties are even more Hispanic. I think Eagle and Garfield are at least like almost 30% Hispanic. How do you feel they're represented right now at the state capitol? And how would you want to change that? Yeah, we definitely need diverse leadership and in the Western Slope, that has been a gap. So I, I definitely want to encourage people to run to run for office, to, to um, 
to bring their voice because our voice is very important and our lived experience is important. Um, so I, I definitely look forward to supporting women of color to run and supporting more women and, you know, diverse candidates and working class candidates to run because I feel like that, that that's also an, an issue for us in rural communities is that we have less access to resources and less access to, um, you know, political workers and campaign workers. So we're creating that infrastructure um, so that it's easier for, for more people like me to run. Okay, so you're talking about really kind of, uh, you know, inspiring more people to run for office, to have some more campaigns. And within the state capital, do you have any particular goals or things that you want to focus on when it comes to increasing the the voice of um, obviously not just the people in the mountains, but also Hispanic people in the mountains? Yeah, I've been talking a lot with some of our representatives about voter turnout because we have low voter turnout in the mountains. And, you know, in my district, we have the two opposites. We have a county that has great turnout. Uh, Pitkin County has some of the best turnout in the country. And then we have uh, Garfield County, which has lower turnout. And I think that there's an opportunity for us to engage people, not only Latinos, but immigrants uh, and people of color to come out and vote. Because we, um, you know, we want, uh, we know that democracy works and we know that that's the path to freedom. And we know that it's a, um, you know, or duty and a privilege to, to be able to vote for, for the candidates that, that we want to represent us. Um, so I look forward to, to doing more of that, you know, expanding the electorate, engaging community and, and having better voter turnout. Because I'm an environmental reporter and you have a, a background doing a lot of this um, work surrounding the environment and nature and access to nature and, and uh, information about it. Last year, the state basically began to, you know, decided that it really wanted to start fixing and preventing sort of disproportionate impacts of pollution, disproportionate impacts of climate change, and basically center environmental justice in a lot of the future work and policies that they do. Based on your own experience and now being a part of the state capital, how would you describe environmental justice? Yeah, that's a tough question because I know that there's a lot a lot of work to do. I, I look forward to the recommendations from the task force, you know, the, the environmental justice task force that was created. And I know that in my community, we have areas that are heavily impacted by resource extraction and where there's going to be a need for a just transition, where there's going to be a need for, um, you know, we need the support to to make sure that our community has access to clean air and clean water. So in my mind, environmental justice means not leaving anyone behind. It means having, um, you know, letting community lead, listening to all the stakeholders and making sure that we have clean air and clean water. I saw one of the debates that you had about a month ago, I think, and you talked that you did not support diverting water from your region for urban areas. So what did you mean by that statement and, and, and why did you make it? Is this an issue in your district? It is an issue. You know, we we have a lot of ranching in our communities and all ranchers have been the 
the keepers of water. You know, we, we, uh, they're the ones who have the water rights. And we, we have been seeing that when they come into hard times, they have to sell their land. And then urban areas are buying up the water rights and then diverting the water away from or ranching communities. And the urban areas meaning in the front range? Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, we need to make sure that we have a better plan uh, for drought, that we have a better plan for water quality, that we are working together uh, to make sure that we are, you know, using this limited resource in the best way. And this is a very complicated issue, you know, from protecting our watersheds and having healthy forests to making sure that we are, um, you know, being very, very good at uh, using the water from agriculture to to our homes, you know, the, the individual user. But also we are sharing the river and the water with the upper basin states, with California, with Arizona, and they are using a lot more than we are, and they are growing a lot faster. So, you know, there's going to be a renegotiation of this this treaty um, for water. And, and there's also the risk of the federal government coming in and saying, we're going to take charge and, and tell you what to do, which we don't want. You know, we want Colorado to keep leading the way uh, when it comes to water resources and clean energy, and we want to make sure that we have a say on that treaty when it has to be renegotiated, and that we are holding the the other states accountable, you know, to make sure that uh, we have uh, our share of this very valuable resource. CPR's climate and environment reporter Miguel Otarola speaking with Democrat Elizabeth Velasco. She is a certified wildland firefighter and emergency translator and will represent Pitkin and Garfield counties in the state legislature. When we come back, a second chance after three decades behind bars for a crime he did not commit. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I don't speak Spanish when I go um, to the panderia to get snacks. They speak to me in, in Spanish. In the first season of Quien Are We, you heard from a whole lot of people about their passions, relationships. I was so happy. I was so impressed with you. And, you and maybe you heard yourself in their stories. And then I'm not even going to lie to you. One time me and Sam were like, was, you know, let's break out the huevo. Let's maybe somebody gave him evil eyes. The first season of Quien Are We, everywhere you listen. Abram Arrington spent 30 years locked away in Colorado for a murder in the 90s that someone else committed. His story points to a larger issue about the mental and emotional toll incarceration takes on families. Here's CPR's justice reporter, Lucretia Wembley. The day Abram Arrington was found guilty and was whisked away in handcuffs to serve a life sentence, his mom and sister Mia say they weren't notified and missed the verdict reading. Mia says she'll never forget her mother's face that day. That the pain in her eyes when I seen her was like a, it was like a look, and it's hard to explain that look in a woman's eyes when they lose their child like that, and it was nothing they can do. People who are incarcerated often deal with anger, pain, and hopelessness, but that emotional toll is not limited to them. 
their loved ones, mothers, sisters, children, and friends also feel the long-lasting psychological impact of serving time. Arrington certainly felt that anger when he was first locked away. I'm in here for a murder I didn't commit. I don't smoke, don't drink, never done drugs a day in my life. As far as mental health is concerned, I'm supposed to be angry. Arrington spent four years in the Air Force, and his family, especially his brother Montel, couldn't wait for him to get home to Colorado Springs in 1989. He got out, of, you know, flew home. Uh, you know, we were happy about that, ready to move on in life. And, and then, of course, uh, all this craziness happened. The craziness. It was a burglary that left the man shot and killed. Abram's cousin James Carroll had fired shots, but a witness mistakenly identified Arrington as a suspect. He was 22 years old. His sister Mia says she went to visit him in the county jail. When I went to go see Abram and stuff, um, when it when it happened, because I was like just like shocked by the whole situation. That um, uh, when I got in there, he just said I, I didn't do anything. But a guilty verdict came down, and Abram was sentenced to life in prison for first-degree murder in 1991. Prosecutors didn't have any direct evidence linking him to the shooting or to the scene of the shooting. He had no prior criminal record. Yet suddenly, he found himself at the Lyman Correctional Facility. I used to work in the gym. I was a, a porter, and I used to have to go and clean up. I used to mop up blood off, off, off the floor, like, Every morning that summer, I'm dead serious. It had to be like every morning. To be wrongly incarcerated for so long is not a common occurrence. Arrington's experience is not typical, but his struggle with anger and his family's devastation is sadly common. According to the Bell Policy Center in Denver, incarceration disrupts a community's social control and support by breaking up families and increasing reliance on government programs. Scott Wasserman, president of the center, says something has to change. The entire family's life is destroyed, and the trauma that occurs is incalculable. Decades into his sentence, Abram's mother, Roberta Harris, and other family members spoke of that emotional toll of life without Abram in a clemency petition sent to Governor Jared Polis. Not to have Abram in our lives, how can I describe it? It's emptiness like a piece of a puzzle, something like a piece of your life is missing. Governor Polis cut Arrington's sentence short after granting him clemency in 2019. On February 27th of 2020, Arrington walked out of the prison as a free man for the first time in 30 years. But anxiety ran rampant. I felt like one of those animals you see on one of those nature shows when they're releasing them. When they take the cage out and they open the door, literally that's how I felt. Abram became a devout Muslim during his 30 years of incarceration, and he garnered respect from staff and his peers over the years. He also patented a flood mitigation system after seeing a flood on the news one day. I always tell people when they ask me, what do you want people to know about people in prison? I said they have something to contribute if you just give them the chance to come, come back into the communities. Despite his unforeseen incarceration, Abram now works at the Second Chance Center in Aurora as an office manager and caseworker, helping other formerly imprisoned people re-enter society. I'm Lucretia Wembley, CPR News. When we come back, It's a Wonderful Life takes on new meaning and purpose. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Colorado's Front Range, just where does it start and end? 
Why does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? What's the perfect seat at Red Rocks for the best sound? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Rachel Estabrook from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Help us all discover more about our state of wonders. CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. In Colorado Springs, a community is just beginning to process the shooting at Club Q that claimed the lives of five people. As they do, a new show, a holiday staple, is heading to the stage amid the backdrop of an LGBTQ community in mourning. It's a Wonderful Life, a live radio play, kicks off the holiday season at the Fine Arts Center Theater Company in Colorado Springs. CPR's Eden Lane visited the cast during rehearsal just hours before the shooting at Club Q took place. Company members discussed the challenges of telling the story and what it's like for some queer artists to live and work in Colorado Springs. Welcome to a live broadcast of WBFR Playhouse of the Air. We thank you for braving the weather this Christmas Eve, and you'll be glad you did when you hear the story that we have for you tonight. It's a wonderful life. This version of the American classic, It's a Wonderful Life, still follows the Bedford Falls idealist, George Bailey, who faces a crisis on Christmas Eve. However, the small ensemble cast brings all of the characters to life as if they were on a 1940s radio show. Half of the company had never seen the film before getting ready to stage the show, which has become an annual holiday viewing tradition for so many. Abigail Vafiatis, who plays the radio station Foley artist, says that this story and radio plays in general are part of her memories with her father. Uh, one of the things that me and my father could bond over is like old classic movies and radio shows. And this is actually one of his favorite like Christmas films. And so we would often digest about it and talk about it. Um, so I'm super excited to get this opportunity to like for him to see a radio play that's of his favorite show. Director Marissa Ebert has assembled a diverse group for the show, including people of color and some who identify as queer. She was not a fan of the source material or main character George Bailey before starting work on this production. For me, it was more about finding the things in the material that I did connect with. And that was my way into it. I looked for ways in to connect with the community aspect of it and how everything he does, even though it's just his innate nature to do those things, actually has such a big ripple effect in this town where he lives and the people that he he interacts with, how for him, it's just doing what he thinks he should be doing. And for everyone else, it changes the course of their lives. And how the whole community, when he spent his entire life helping everyone in that community, how when he needed it, his entire community stepped up to support him. Sammy Gleason did grow up watching the movie version. Like most of the cast, he plays many characters in this production, but his work as Clarence, the angel second class, holds a special place for him. When I was offered the role, I was very excited to get my stab at playing this weird little old man that Clarence is presented as in the film. Because he's very soft and he's very kind and he's very gentle and there's a sort of like safe old grampiness to him, which I think was really nice. But then as we got into this, especially with Maurice, our director, wanting to bring a vision of the 40s and It's a Wonderful Life that was perhaps more visually inclusive with the who was cast and also more inclusive in the sense of like, what would the 40s look like if 
black and brown people and queer people were given the same opportunities and respect as heterosexual white men were in the 1940s. What would that look like? And so that's sort of what we're presenting up here. And so when I was offered the role of Clarence, she was like, I just want to see what happens when you bring a little gay angel up on stage. Theatrically, I've been working for nearly 20 years in this town specifically, which uh, for any queer folks, we will know that it's navigating Colorado Springs as a queer person or anyone who's marginalized is obviously a tightrope walk, specifically from a queer gay standpoint. So this is one of the few times in 20 years of doing theater where I'm encouraged to be just as authentically who I am as I want and really lean into things that allow me to sit outside of a, a very sort of heterosexual masculine way of presenting. Dana Skurlock plays Mary Bailey in the show. I asked her about racial representation in the show and in theater in general since the promises made about improved representation after the pandemic. Is it better? Is it different? Is it easier overall as a person of color in theater? No. I don't think that it's I don't, and I don't think we should expect that. I think that monumental changes, it's like steering the Titanic, like that old adage. It was like, they saw the iceberg. It's just that it took too long to turn it because it was so huge. Like that's how I view the theater industry or entertainment in general. It's like, it's just going to take a while to turn the big ass ship. And so number one, we have to be, you know, consistent with our efforts to make things more diverse and to call out things that are oppressive within these institutions. But also we do have to be patient to some degree because I think that some of these things are so ingrained that it's just going to take time for them to, to be altered. Specifically working at the FAC, I think that that comes from like the leadership down that they've made a commitment to this. And so that's why you're seeing that trickle into like the manifestation of a show of like five people. And there's like multiple people of color, there's queer people. Um, I think that it's, lends itself to being able to be more diverse just because theoretically we're doing it for this like audience that's just listening who they wouldn't be able to tell who was doing it either. During my visit with the company, they had no way of knowing the loss their community would experience in mere hours after the shooting at Club Q. But many said they were already aware of the risks and rewards ahead for this untraditional production of a holiday classic. Two days after the shooting, I spoke again with director Marissa Ebert. When I was talking with the cast, it was before the, before the events of the weekend. And during our chat, we talked about the inclusive nature of this company and how richly that serves the story and the audience who will get a chance to enjoy it for this holiday season. And specifically, we talked about color and uh, being queer artists, not just playing these roles, but queer artists telling this story at Christmas living in Colorado Springs. Since when I spoke to them, it was before these events, I wonder if you can tell me what impact this may have, or you feel it has for yourself mm -hmm. on telling this story with this particular group of artists. Our producer, who's the interim artistic director, I think. Um, Mo is also a queer woman. And we just we just held some space in the morning to let people have their feelings and just be in the room with each other. And then we, the Fine Arts Center is located like a block and a half away from the Unitarian Church where one of the vigils was being held. So as a cast, we decided to walk over there and just spend some time in a bigger community and just really let it sink in and not necessarily in a good way, but just in a watching the support for our community. Mm -hmm. And as we tell this very specific story where so much of it is about how your life 
impacts and connects to other people's lives, I think we're learning that lesson already. We're learning that lesson. And I can't help it. I'm going to get a little emotional about it. I understand, and, and that's okay. I, I do too. Yeah. Um, even though you're a director and a theater maker and I'm a reporter, we're human beings first. Of course. I, I just, we're learning so much about how everyone who's there, how they impacted our community, what their ripple effect was. And I, it's times like these where it, it's wonderful that the community comes out and we can love each other and support each other, but it also is horrible that we have to have these events to bring us together. It would be nicer if all those ripple effects and all of the touching of lives that these people have done and will continue to do, because now this is something that lives in our collective history, could be one that wasn't surrounded in violence and wasn't surrounded in hate. So we'll just counterbalance that with the, the love and kindness of It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> you also touched on the importance you felt even before this incident, when you were back when you were casting this, to choose these artists so carefully to tell this story from the 40s. Could you revisit that for me? Of for a course. Um, as I said earlier, because I am a, a Black woman, I'm a queer woman as well, it was important to create a world where um, all humans felt safe and seen and that they could survive and thrive. I um, kept coming back to that when we would talk about our, like our costuming and the lights and the sound and what we wanted it to feel like was, it was really important to create a world where queer people and gender non-conforming people and brown people and people of the global majority and where we could just all feel like this was our world and we didn't have to um, be afraid of anything in it. And we didn't have to hide any of what we were coming to the table with that all of us got to be in the room, every single, whatever it is that we're all made of, like none of the queer cast had to leave that outside of the door. And none of our members of color had to do the code shifting we all do where we try to be a little bit wider than we actually are. None of that had to happen in our 1940s. In our 1940s, everybody in the room was in the room because that was the community we built and that was the world that we decided we wanted to create and live in. What do you see as something that listeners should know about moving forward? And even though this cast wasn't at the club, that they're going to move forward and tell the story about the ripples of lives through throughout communities. What would you say? Yeah, I would say that it costs us nothing to be kind to one another. And I would say that we just have to love each other as much as we can for as long as we can. And for those allies who love and support us, that they love and support us out loud and every day and in every single way that they can. CPR's Eden Lane reporting. It's a Wonderful Life, a live radio play is at the Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center through December 23rd. Free museum admission is included with the cost of tickets. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
The enormous T-Rex may have been a terror to all it encountered, but it was not invincible. It could be taken down by a 25-foot-long armor-clad plant eater, Ankylosaurus. The Ankylosaurus stood relatively low to the ground. A narrow beak helped it strip leaves from plants, but it was built like a tank, studded with spikes. Bones and other body parts fused together to make it stronger. Its most fearsome feature? The tail, where plates merged into a thick club. One swing could easily shatter the bones of a T-Rex. The Ankylosaur roamed slowly across Colorado 60-some million years ago, and its seven-ton body left deep footprints on Skyline Drive near Canyon City, heading west through ancient marshlands. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Sheets and Giggles, a Colorado company. Gerald Albright. His name is synonymous with smooth jazz, and the Grammy Award-winning saxophonist has demonstrated some serious career longevity, having worked with some of the biggest names in the music industry. He and his family have called Colorado home for nearly 20 years now. The crisp air and breathtaking mountain views have inspired much of his work, including many of the signature collaborations that have defined his career. Well, it's a big part of the pie, the musical pie. You know, collaborating with other artists only brings, you know, special music and other great chapters to the listening ear of our audiences. You know, we like to mix it up a lot. You know, I, I don't want to write all the songs and, and perform all the songs by myself. I mean, it's it's a lot more fun for me to be a part of a team and share talents with folks who I truly love on different levels, both musically, spiritually and otherwise. And it just promotes the music on a higher platform. So it's all about celebrating the music and collaborating is one of those major facets of it that we just know and love. Here's an excerpt from Sheen Magazine. Albright is not only a master saxophonist, he is also a multi-instrumentalist who takes extreme pride in producing extraordinary music that resonates deep into the hearts and souls of people on a global scale. How does it feel to hear you and your work described that way? It's the greatest compliment in the world. Uh, I started playing saxophone when I was nine years old, and it was my dream to be on stage and have my own band and write my own music and have a record deal. And I just really have been fulfilling my dream and purpose. And I feel after all these years that I'm just getting started. I, I feel like there's more music to produce, more music to write, perform. I love being on stage and and uh, witnessing the spontaneity of the music and the oneness with the audience. And it, it just never gets old. It never gets boring. Well, clearly you have done a lot with your career. You have sold more than a million albums in the U.S. alone and have appeared on over 200 albums with a wide variety of artists. Some of those artists include Anita Baker, Olivia Newton-John, The Temptations, Maurice White of Denver's hometown band, Earth, Wind & Fire. You've also toured with Quincy Jones and Whitney Houston. What stands out to you as a top career highlight? We spoke earlier about collaborations. I mean, when you're on the stage with a Whitney Houston or a Phil Collins, you're in front of 50, 60, 70,000, sometimes 100,000 people in in one gig, you know. And, And sometimes you look off the stage and you go, my goodness, this is a true testimony of how powerful music is for these people to stand out all day in 100 degree weather 
and you can't even see the end of the crowd because it's it's so massive. Yeah. Um, it's just uh, it's the greatest compliment for people to appreciate and love what you do on that magnitude. So having worked with artists of that caliber, I will never forget those moments. And it just made me a better person all the way around as an, as an entertainer. You know, it allowed me to travel the globe and see places that I never would have seen without music. It was just a win-win across the board in the A to Z. So I'm just very thankful that I've had those experiences. Now, you mentioned Phil Collins, and I wanted to ask you about that. You fronted a big band for and was handpicked to tour with Phil Collins. What was that experience like? Incredible. Um, Phil is a dear friend. And at one point of his career, he wanted to just be a drummer. You know, he's known for his vocals and his songwriting and all the stuff that he did for for Disney movies over the years. But sometimes when you dig deep into a, a person's passion, you're surprised at what they really want to do. And there was a point in time where he wanted to do a big man tour and have a couple of featured artists, uh, namely myself and the fantastic uh, Olita Adams. And we all toured together with this big band. And it was a totally different experience than his pop side with all of his big pop hits. And uh, we recorded a record called A Hot Night in Paris, which uh, I had the blessing of uh, employing one of my tunes called Chips and Salsa mm. uh, as a big band arrangement on that particular project. So uh, working with Phil uh, was just like uh, one of the apexes in my career because he, he's just quite a gentleman himself. And of course, quite the musician and vocalist that everybody knows and loves. And, you know, I, I smile at those experiences that I've had with him. So uh, it, it's, it's great. It's great to have that. What inspired Chips and Salsa? I just love Latin music. I was uh, very fortunate to be a bassist and a saxophonist with the great Willie Bobo, who was uh, a premier uh, Latin recording artist for many, many years. And that style of music was very festive and high energy. And, and I really enjoyed that. So uh, out of those experiences, uh, I wrote Chips and Salsa and originally recorded it with a small combo hmm. uh, of just a rhythm section. And then when we decided to do it on the Hot Night in Paris, Phil Collins record, uh, it went from that to like a major big band, powerful sound. And uh, I just love both arrangements because one is very intimate and the other one is just full throttle, uh, high energy with a bunch of horns and a full rhythm section. So it's nice to have, uh, you know, both versions to, to appreciate.
to your career, again, it's just so hard to hone in on one hit. I asked around to some of your fans about their favorites, and they mentioned Before I Let Go with Dave Koz, which is the famed Frankie Beverly and Mays song that I call the quintessential summer barbecue and family reunion song. (laughs) (laughs) You have to have it. Some also mentioned My, 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 Ain't No Stopping Us Now. What are two of your favorite songs to perform? Wow. It's hard to narrow it down, but I have to say that So Amazing is very important to me because that was my launching pad for my recording career. That was my very first single back in 1987. And I'm a big fan of Luther Vandross, who I was Mm. inspired to borrow this tune from. And I've been playing it ever since 1987. So that sticks like glue to my career. I have to do that song on stage or, you know, my audience gets a little perturbed about it. Lately here, I did, uh, on my Slam Dunk project, I did a version of James Brown's It's a Man's Man's World. I love doing that song because you can really dig into the melody, and it's it's such a soulful song, and, and it's a very open and very simple and honest song in its approach. So I get a chance to kind of take my time with it because it's a ballad and just kind of, you know, put the gravy on it and, and really kind of massage it. all around the world for your music and you are a Los Angeles native but you moved to Castle Rock with your family in 2005 why Colorado well I was at a point in my life where I needed some change and I had been in Los Angeles all my life Mm -hmm. Los Angeles is a place that I truly love Um, so I have great experiences there but you know as you get older you kind of want to slow the pace down a little bit and in 2004 I did uh, a big benefit here uh, for a dear friend of mine who was promoting it. And I just mentioned to him in passing that, you know, I've been to Denver maybe a few times, but only to perform one day and then leave and never had a chance to really capture the Mm. essence of Denver and the neighboring cities around. And he said, well, why don't you come in a couple of days early, you and your wife and check out the city, look at some homes, you know, just and I play golf, so he said, go to some golf courses and see what you like. <laughs> like oh, he was he was uh, reeling you in, huh, secretly. <laughs> he was reeling me in, you know. So, uh, and so we did that. For two days, we saw about 25 homes, which is a lot of work, by the way. And yes. uh, we went to the downtown area and uh, you know, 16th Street Mall and that whole area and just kind of captured the essence of it. And long story short, we moved 45 days later from that experience. And we just love being here. We're almost 18 years into being uh, Colorado residents, and we're just loving it. What projects have been inspired by Colorado? 
Well, in 2006, I released a project that I'm very proud of called New Beginnings. And it seriously was New Beginnings for us because being from the West Coast and we've never lived anywhere else. When we got here, we were like, wow, we really moved to Colorado. We did this, you know, just seeing the wildlife and the people were very nice here. It was really inspiring for me to put together. When I listen to songs on that record, it always makes me reflect back to when we first moved here. And it was a win-win for all of us as a family. So that, that project, New Beginnings, uh, was one that came out of that move. In preparing for this interview, I reached out to some of your fans in Colorado and one gentleman by the name of Don Stickles of Franktown, near where you live in Castle Rock, told me that he is a huge fan of yours, but he says he's an even bigger fan of you and your wife, Glennis, due to an act of kindness you both extended to him during a specially emotional time. He told us about how he and his wife met you and your wife on a jazz cruise, you, you know, discussed that you both live in Colorado, you remained in touch, he and his wife would always come to your shows, and when his wife passed away unexpectedly, your wife wrote a beautiful letter that was read at her memorial service. It's a very wonderful uh, thing that kept me going through uh, what was very difficult times. Uh, You can just hear the emotion in his voice. Oh my goodness, yeah. Whenever I'm in the the Colorado area, I can always look out in the audience and see, well, before his wife passed, I could see them as a couple out there really enjoying the music. And then now I always see him in the audience. And I'm just really glad that he was touched by Glennis's letter because it was, I believe, an easy thing to do for her because of the time we spent on the jazz cruises. And we always appreciated them as a couple and mm. and the spirit that they emoted. So, you know, they were just great people. And I just love great people. My wife loves great people. And so I'm, I'm glad that it touched his heart. And I'm sure that his wife, uh, Peggy, is smiling down on him for all the wonderful years that they've shared together. So that that's a great way to clinch the interview. I appreciate that. Gerald Albright, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. That's Grammy Award-winning saxophonist Gerald Albright, who has lived in Colorado for nearly 20 years. We spoke in September. Albright is featured on the new holiday single released this month by gospel singer Doug Williams. It's called An Unusual Child. Jazz saxophonist Gerald Albright featured on the new holiday song An Unusual Child by Doug Williams. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Matters today. I'm Shonda Thomas-Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.